Well, at first glance, this first part of the reading that Martin just read for us, the passage seems to be a moment when Jesus is just giving us some helpful social advice, you know, against the dangers of entitlement. Don't presume to take the best seat. You might be horribly embarrassed when someone more important arrives and you have to leave your seat. Well, I have to tell you that this, I experienced my freshman year in college in a most mortifying and dreadful way. My boyfriend at the time, not Richard, my boyfriend at the time had procured two tickets for the opening of the Hasty Pudding Show. And we arrived at the opening and, and realized that the tickets were in two different rows. One was in the way, way back, and one was kind of in the middle. And uh, it was kind of almost the beginning of the show when there were like seven open seats in that middle row. So we decided, well, we'll just both sit here. Clearly, they aren't arriving, those people. And about a minute later, the house lights are lowered, music comes up, a spotlight is on six people walking toward our row. It's Sean Connery and his retinue. And the producer of the Hasty Pudding, who did not get to sit in the seat that had been left for him because Marjorie and her boyfriend were sitting there. Uh, I actually did just yesterday <laughs> email the now producer of the Hasty Pudding and said, I need to find out that guy's name and make amends somehow. Uh, in other words, yes, it's a very good social advice not to sit where you haven't been invited to sit. But the fact of the matter is that useful as that advice is, we realize upon closer reading that Jesus isn't really speaking about social advice. He wasn't particularly interested in social niceties. And actually, he didn't seem to care much about embarrassment either, if you look at the life of Jesus. He's actually telling a parable. The, the scripture tells us that. There is a deeper and richer spiritual meaning to what he's saying, and we need to look for that. Well, the first clue is that this story is about a feast. And in the Gospel of Luke, feasts point to God's impending rule in the newly restored heavens and earth. When God, as the most wonderful host invites his people to enter his rest and hospitality. Isaiah describes it. We hear it uh, in Advent. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. And Jesus himself talks about this wonderful feast at the Last Supper. The night before his crucifixion, he says, I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So when we hear Jesus talking about a feast, we start thinking he isn't just talking about any old gathering. He is referring to that feast in the world made new that God's people are invited to enjoy with him forever. Eternal life 
in the new heavens and the new earth. And just as an aside here, you know, it's worth reflecting on the fact that Jesus spends time looking forward to life after death. You know, um, he was looking forward to when he would celebrate with his friends, which includes you guys. He was looking forward to that. I mean, I have to say, I think our culture sort of frowns upon people who sort of spend a lot of time thinking about the next life. You know, it seems sort of weak and pathetic because we should be a practical people who are completely anchored in the present moment, you know, and not spend idle times of fantasy thinking about a next life. But that's not what Jesus recommends or does. He tells us that we are living this life in preparation for a better one. My husband received an email a few weeks ago from a relative. She's a cousin from the Kingdom of Tonga in the South Pacific. And in her email, she was describing the last days of her brother's life. She particularly mentioned that he was preparing to meet his Lord. She said, our family theme has always been to heaven we all go. What a great family theme. Who has a crest that says that? <laughs> I want that crest. I want that theme. To heaven we all go. She understands with such bright clarity the priority of this life, which is to prepare to live in anticipation of the promises of God and a kingdom that is coming. Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but store up treasure in heaven. It is not a waste of time to reflect on God's promise of eternal life. Quite the reverse. That blessed assurance helps us prioritize what is actually important in this one. Well, that was a bit of a digression. Back to the parable of the feast, which is actually the heavenly banquet. The second clue to what Jesus is really talking about is something we infer from the rest of the chapter, which is that apparently Jesus had observed a great deal of showing off and jostling to attain position in God's eyes, or at least God's eyes from a human point of view. Jostling in showing off to other people how religiously respectable one was. How deserving of a position in God's kingdom. This display was not really motivated by loving God or even obedience to him. It was about feeling superior to others. Setting oneself up as first and conversely looking down on others. Maybe even dismissing others as completely unfit for God's particular loving favor. Jesus is warning these people, the Pharisees in this case, not to regard themselves as God's favorites on the basis of their religious diligence. We could also imagine that when Luke is writing this gospel, he is aware of a similar dynamic going on between the Jewish Christians, 
the first Christians, and the newly integrated in Gentile Greek Christians. The Jewish ones perhaps felt a bit superior to the pagan converts. They might have held up their noses at the less biblically educated Greeks who were showing up to worship. Maybe the Greek pagan women were wearing the equivalent of yoga pants, and the Jewish Christians were disparaging. You know, this could go on. We certainly must be aware of making judgments about our fellow Christians, you know, even lighthearted ones. So many jokes about what the Baptists are doing or that, you know, it's easy to fall into that sort of disparaging business about other denominations. It's good to love our Episcopal tradition. I'm so grateful for it, but not to the point of degrading other denominations. It's tempting to make comments about worship style or debatable points of doctrine or, as we are Episcopalian, lack of taste, the worst thing, or perhaps make judgments based on political stands. But the strange truth about our status with God is that it is not deserved. It relies completely on his grace, his forgiveness, his healing, his generous hospitality. We don't get what we deserve, and that is, in fact, really good news. We don't get what we deserve. We get God's favor, the status of his beloved son, Jesus, who exchanged his inheritance for ours. As Isaiah says it prophetically, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Followers of Jesus, I know you've heard this before, but it's worth hearing again. Followers of Jesus are beggars telling other hungry people where to find bread. That really is our status. But in God's graciousness, Jesus tells us that when this is our attitude, we will find that one day the Lord himself will say, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. To heaven we all go. Amen. <laughs>